Hey, everybody, and welcome to the State of the Art podcast, where we're talking about art, technology, and most importantly, why you should give a shit. I'm your host, Andrew Herman, and I'm a startup founder, an engineer, and a creative. I am fascinated by the collision of art and technology. I'm excited to bring you along as I meet artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, and anybody else who lives on the border between art and technology. This week, I'm really excited to present this podcast because this one is our first kind of experimental podcast. This is actually a collaboration with our friends at Kodame. And if you're asking yourself, well, Herm, who is Kodame? Well, then shame on you. Clearly, you're not a regular listener who remembers Vanessa Chang. Vanessa Chang, we interviewed a little while ago, um, and she's the curator at Kodame. And at the time, she was talking to us about her upcoming art and tech festival, their art and tech festival, uh, called Artobots. Because Vanessa and the crew at Kodame are awesome, they actually invited us along to check out Artobots. And even cooler, they gave us the opportunity to talk to their panelists and presenters and artists um, right on site. So what you're going to hear in this podcast is a set of one-on-one interviews that were all recorded on site at the Midway Creative Complex in San Francisco's Dog Patch during the Art and Tech Festival called Artobots. The first thing you're going to hear is a couple of panelists from the laser panel. If AI makes it, is it art? Interesting, right? We talk about that stuff a lot here on the podcast, but in this particular set of interviews, I'll be sitting down first with artist and roboticist Alexander Rieben, who uses technology to explore humanity, our mannerisms, and our social interactions, the simple things that we may take for granted that make us human. Following that up, you're going to meet Alexander's co-panelist, Meredith Trombel, who is herself an artist and writer who mixes drawing, performance, and installation in her practice. I hope you guys enjoyed the interviews and uh, let us know what you think. Welcome to another uh, little installment here of State of the Art. This is the first time we're doing sort of a festival thing, so don't exactly know how the format's going to work, but <laughs> I am uh, outside the midway here with Alexander Rieben, and Alexander just got, or Alex, got out of a talk right now around what is AI and art, is AI, or is art created by an AI, really art, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, So first of all, for listeners, can you just kind of give a little bit of your background, both sort of as an artist and sort of as a, in the technical world? Yeah. So um, my education was uh, actually in applied math and social robotics. um, And along in parallel, I've always been doing artwork. uh, And in the more recent years, I've been doing uh, mostly fine art world uh, stuff, uh, artworks and that sort of thing, uh, but also consulting um, usually consulting with things that align with what I'm doing in the art world anyway. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a good combination for me. So tell me about, um, I think for a lot of people, the notion of social robotics would be an interesting uh, yeah. sort of little caveat. Explain to me how you kind of got into that and what it is. Yeah, so uh, at the time, this is, geez, almost 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, this is pre-Siri, Echo, all those sort of interfaces. Uh, social robotics as a field is really looking at how people interact with robots uh, in a less push-button way, in a more conversational or emotional um, interactive way. Um, so I built this robot called Boxy, 
and its purpose was to both create a documentary about the people around it and see if people would help it. Um, so what uh, was done was Boxy was put outside my lab uh, and it roamed around MIT autonomously. Mm. Uh, uh, one, to try to find people to help it to do things. And two, it had a little camera inside. And when people picked it up and started talking to it, uh, it would ask them questions about what they were doing and who they are and why they're there just to start forming a bond. Um, and that was the idea is to, was to create a you know, cute little documentary at the end of the little camera it had inside. I uh, wasn't expecting anything huge, but interesting things happened. Uh, for example, one person who talked to it was this runner from the Boston Marathon uh, who wandered into MIT just because he was bored. And he encountered this robot. He'd probably never seen a robot before. And he lay down on the floor and started telling the robot all his problems, that his flight was delayed and he wanted to go home. And all these other people were like walking around him with the robot on the floor. And it sort of struck me that if he did this with a stranger or someone at the lab, he'd seem like a crazy person. If he just stopped at someone random and started telling them his problems, it, it he, he'd seem like ridiculous. Um, so that, that is really the first time I noticed there's something super powerful about the connection people could have with these machines, but also something that needed more uh, more thought because that person just opened up to this thing. He doesn't know where the footage is going. He doesn't yeah. know what's happening. He just sort of trusts implicitly this little cute robot. Um, so I'd say that was the first um, directionality, uh, the first direction I took in my research, yeah. at, least, at least in the idea of, of people opening up to machines. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. And I mean, obviously the listeners won't see necessarily, I mean, they can maybe find, do you have the video? Yeah, anywhere? there are things, uh, the, so that robot's called Boxy. There are new, smaller, cuter ones called Lab Droids. You yeah. can Google and see some video well, of people for, talking to them. For listeners, look them up because they are like irrationally cute for, yep. Yep. <laughs> for being a little pizza box robot. Yeah, yeah. There's also a, a story from NPR, All Things Considered, where uh, Laura Seidel, a reporter, asked people the same questions as a robot to try to investigate what, what could happen. <laughs> so that's a good piece to listen to. Find that online. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Um, so where, uh, wh why is that work interesting to you? Like why, um, why should people care what sort of the social impact of robots walking around is yeah um i mean i've ex expanded my my investigations into what i would call um how technology and art can come together to look at humanity okay um so not only social sides but also uh any sort of connection that's more human than we're used to in this sort of technology and i think it's becoming more and more important because we're getting more and more social interfaces there are more and more things we're going to talk to uh think about a self-driving car you're going to get into a car you know fairly soon probably, where you're going to put your life into its hands. Yeah. There's no Uber driver, no bus driver, no airplane pilot. You know, you're going to have to trust this thing. Um, you know, and one way to get someone to trust a car is if you go into it and it starts talking to you. So I wouldn't be surprised if automakers start building in voices and characters into these machines. So we're going to quickly see social interfaces actually be super important in these intelligent devices. And there's still a ton more research to be done on the consequences of these sorts of things. Yeah. It's really interesting, man, because like, so one of the things that strikes me is you're talking about the, the Boston Marathon or like laying on the floor, <laughs> you know, uh, having a sleepover with a robot almost <laughs> like one of the parallels that I see between um, that, you know, that sort of experiment, if you will, and what is more conventionally thought of as art is uh, that both, both things uh, sort of pull out reactions, emotions and empathy 
um, from real people, but to things that are, um, well, in the case of traditional art, it's an inanimate object. In the mm-hmm. case of a robot, it's an animate object, but still just an object. Yep. What do you think it is sort of inside of us that's always looking for something to connect to? I think part of it is evolutionary uh, and part of it is is learned. Yeah. I think uh, thinking things are alive quickly is a response to stay alive, to find predators quickly in our environment. So we, it's better to think something is alive than it's not from a survival standpoint. <laughs> right. um, as far as social interaction, that comes from, I think, also evolution, forming connections with other human beings to increase survival. Mm. So I think you know, social connection is uh, almost an instinct. Yeah, in humanity. So when you build a machine that exploits these basically knee-jerk reactions, uh, they're quite powerful because they're so because they're so embedded. Uh, but I mean, you don't even need a face really or, to, or a voice to get people to connect to these things. I had another piece which was a, a, a collaboration, which was this drum which had a heartbeat and a timer. And it was programmed with the amount of seconds a baby would have before they die on average. Mm. And it's put into a gallery and it's dying and its heartbeat is going. And people... There's two reactions usually. People either start feeling sad about uh, about existence or they want to go skydiving or something like that. <laughs> but they have a really strong emotional reaction to this basically bass drum and clock, right? But they're anthropomorphizing it into this like thing they're having this emotional connection to. So uh, these are really powerful responses we have to things. And because they're so powerful, they are going to become more important to understand within the context of technology. Mm. Do you think that the the goal should be to use sort of what you're learning as an artist? And when I say you, I mean you and the people who are also sort of experimenting in this field creatively. Is the goal to kind of take what you are learning and apply that to what is sort of an inevitable uh upcoming impending technological revolution with intelligence and robotics? <laughs> well, I mean, as an artist, I'm not like publishing papers or anything right, right, uh, right. anymore, at least. Uh, but uh, for me, I think there are two things I want to get out of it. One is that someone had a experience with this object, whatever I build. They, have, they take away either a story or a feeling from it and then incorporate that in their lives somehow. And the second thing is art. It has to be intriguing. It has to be an object that's either beautiful or interesting or something of that sort. Otherwise, you won't engage with it. And I want people to leave questioning something usually, or at least having a feeling about something they didn't think about or feel before. Um, uh, there's another word called the headgasmatron, which <laughs> is this uh, head scratcher, uh, which uh, when someone, it's a thing you can buy from China or Amazon. It's just like uh, metal tines that you put on your head and it scratches your scalp. Yeah. Um, and people's reaction to that is that it's, that's a very intimate spot strangers don't touch you on. Um, and uh, when you use this device there, some people are ticklish, some people feel good, some people shiver, but they have a very visceral emotional reaction. So I put that on a robot arm where people can sit down in the chair and have this robot make them feel this way. And when people get out of the chair, they usually turn around and look at this robot and they're like, I just, I don't know what it means that I just felt this way with a machine, <laughs> right? And you know, as an artist, from a practical standpoint, this is now traveling a museum around Europe, um, I had to create something that people can actually try in a museum setting. Yeah. So intimacy and robotics, your mind goes in one direction, but it's not something you <laughs> right, right, do in right, public. Right. But touching someone on the top of their head is intimate enough. Yeah. So now you can have an experience of intimacy with a machine in this artistic open setting, and you can leave with a personal experience that you couldn't get from reading an article or watching a movie or something of that sort. Mm. Where So for you, where does... Um, 
where does automation end and artificial intelligence begin? Well, artificial intelligence, as the general public now understands it, is like how the general public understands a hoverboard, uh, pretty much because the media turned something that doesn't actually hover into the hoverboard because back to the future, they want clicks. So now AI is like Terminator, but like everything that has anything to do with machine learning or computer learning or anything of that sort is now branded AI. What people really think when they think about AI is is so-called like strong AI, where where it's doing things where... Uh, we're, we're not really in control of the output. It's really thinking in a way. And we're still pretty far from what that is. So to me, the, the immediate things that are of concern are, uh, again, these, these parts of these machine learning algorithms which either pull on our emotions or um, inadvertently become like racist or, or, or <laughs> right? Because yeah. they look at these data sets which maybe inherently have problems and those problems are pulled into these machine learning algorithms and these machines become, uh, have problems. There, there are you know, a few news stories about that actually happening. Yeah. Um, so uh, I actually think there's a lot to discuss even about mach- machines that are quite dumb. Like, you know, the, the, the Blabdroids and Boxy were pretty stupid. They don't have, you know, they have the computing power of like a calculator inside, basically. Yeah. Um, and, but they would get people to cry for them or have connections to them. So I think we're going to, we're going to butt up against really strange ethical and philosophical issues before we even get close to strong AI. Yeah. So I think we should, there's a lot to worry about going forward and there's a lot to be optimistic about, but there's actually a lot to think about now. Right. And a lot that's yeah. happening right at this moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's one of those, you know, I, my background is more as an engineer than it is sort of as a creative, although I do have experience on both sides and, I think there's a, a huge misconception between, um, you know, the these w- what is currently AI or more accurately, in most cases, machine learning or whatever, are sort of these algorithms that are tuned to a very specific problem set, right? They're they're designed to think about one thing, as it were, as opposed to a generalized intelligence that sort of can approach any problem that you throw at it in a way that a human would, but. Um, but it, it sounds like, at least in your work as an artist, you're much less concerned or less interested, as it were, in the general, the general intelligence as you are specifically what's here right now and how can we use it interestingly. Yeah, I think uh, obviously there aren't tools for me to use right, right. now right. to make right. things using general intelligence. Um, so I think some of the issues that I bring up in my artwork can be ported to when general intelligence comes about. Um, but again, like I said, there's so many issues to think about with non-intelligent systems uh, or systems which are somewhat intelligent, but not, you know, not too complicated um, that we can we can think about them now and start approaching them at, at this point um, uh, just to get people to start thinking about them. And it's, you know, when you there, there's there's a way to point out a problem by writing an essay about it or 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 just talking about it. And there's another way where you can have an experience with the problem. And that's where the context of the art world can come into play, right? The, the, it's one thing being in front of a giant painting in a gallery. Another thing looking at it on your cell phone, you have different emotional and visceral reactions to it. Mm. So the context of the gallery and the museum actually, I think, um, in a modern sense, can provide places to ask these questions in these creative and artistic ways. Yeah. Very interesting. So what is it, what is it that you think the general art-consuming public should be thinking about with respect to these projects? 
How would you like them to process your work? Um, people should process my work in whatever way they process it. So for the dying drum, everyone has a different understanding of death and a different sphere of it. Yeah. You know, and you, you will have a different reaction to that machine if someone in your family just died or if you're a kid and you have the rest of your life. You, it's, you have very different personal reactions. Um, so what I want people to take away from these things is how do you feel about it? What does you, make you think about? Mm. Um, and a lot of my work, uh, I don't, I don't like to put in my interpretation. Usually, I want the I want the person to come away with it about what they feel. Um, so I had I had one simple artwork, which were these two aluminum balloons, these mylar balloons, which were attracted and repelled using static electricity. Mm. So they would come next to each other and shock each other and be attracted because of static electricity. But once the charges equalized, they would start repelling. So they'd be in this this back and forth cycle, um, and for me, you know, they're they're silver. They they have no like. If I put like a Donald Trump and Hillary head there, <laughs> that would mean something very specific. But they're but they're not. They're mirrors basically. Right. Um, and what I like to do a lot of times when I'm at the galleries or museums is to step back and listen to how people are talking about it. And one woman was like, "Man, this is just this is just this is really what domestic violence means to me. This is this this shock." And this attraction and repulsion, this continual cycle of uh. things. So to her, she projected her own context of her life onto this uh, device, onto these um, balloons. And these balloons became alive to her yeah. and became what it meant to her. So she had a much more powerful reaction to it than if it was just like some political thing for, for right, example. Right, 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 right. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Alex, it was awesome to kind of touch sure, base yeah. with you here. How, how can people find your work? Uh, yeah, I guess just uh, you can Google my name. Uh, uh, com is my, my website. Um, yeah, just Google. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Alex. This was really fun. For sure. Yeah, thanks. Cheers. Thanks so much to Alex for that interview. Super interesting. And please, everybody, check out these pizza robots. Uh, they're, they're amazing. Google them. Next up on the podcast, uh, one of Alex's co-panelists is Meredith Trombel with her own interesting insights into the future of art and technology, what AI can do as a tool, and more fun stuff. Keep listening. I am outside of uh, the Kodame event here at the Midway with Meredith Trumbull, uh, who was just on a, a another interesting panel with Alex um, on... What is sort of the nature of AI and art? Is it art if if an AI makes it? Um, and it was a really interesting, a really interesting talk. Um, I think what I heard out of it was it seemed like you definitely came a little bit more from the perspective of um, what happens when a general intelligence, uh, sort of the intelligence that we're talking about in the future, not necessarily what we have right now, but what happens when you know, the robot impending sort of singularity version of artificial intelligence can actually create something that, that they meant to, to create. Right. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. That's a, that's a, that was a big question that arose for me as I thought about AI and art for this panel. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you see as the difference between sort of, where AI might be at today in terms of it being a little bit more utilitarian, a little bit more specific to a problem set than a generalized intelligence versus what it might be in the future and how that reflects on art. Well, one of the, as I was thinking about this, I ran across um, research that people are doing where they're building uh, childlike robots that are intended 
uh, to learn from the environment around them like children do. Mm. So it's an AI with a body, but it's not uh, pre-programmed. It's given enough programming to interact with the world, but then it, it builds on that from the information from its senses and its actions. Hmm. And so that struck me as that gets very close to something that has the potential to stumble on art for its own. I, you know, children making drawings, uh, they maybe begin by like, what can this, this colored stick do, you know, and they're just finding stuff out. Right. And, then a lot grows on top of that as we learn how to use and interpret all the different marks that we see around us everywhere in our lives. Mm. But the basis is very human and basic, and it's something that minds with bodies have been doing for a really long time. Yeah. So one of the one of the questions that kind of keeps coming up, and it came up on this panel, and I've heard this, you know, in a lot of the people that I've talked to, this question comes up about the thought of technology and art and what it does to art is nothing new, right? The paintbrush can be thought of as technology. Uh, mark making has always been a matter of figuring out what the newest, coolest thing is. Um, and I asked this question at the panel, but I don't think I got to hear from you. I'm very curious, though. What is different now? What is different about AI as a technology and a tool versus any other technology that's ever touched the art world? Oh, boy, that's such a or good is there question. A <laughs> Um, I I think one of the differences is we've always we have always lived in a world with other intelligences. You know, lions are intelligent and trees are intelligent in their own way, and they actually communicate and so forth and so on. So we have not always acknowledged, or we tend to acknowledge things as intelligent if we can communicate with them, and they will do what we say. So if we begin thinking about intelligence as also having that it's not about us being in control, yeah. but us being in conversation, then you get, I think, into a, a much more interesting situation and where you could have uh, the what you could learn, or learning isn't quite the right word, but that an AI which is interacting with its environment and beginning to pick up connections from its own experiences might at some point have a way of looking at things and intelligence, which is about as alien to us as, say, a, a dog or a cat is. Mm. But wouldn't that be interesting? Because we can sort of communicate with a dog or a yeah. cat. You know, we evolve together. Right. The AI is evolving with us, most definitely. And so... It kind of extends the possibilities, perhaps. Yeah. 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 It, that also kind of brings up an interesting question around uh, collaboration versus, you know, I don't, I don't think we typically think of an artist using a paintbrush as a collaboration between an artist and a paintbrush, right? We think of True. the artist okay. using the the paintbrush as a tool, as a, you know, if you're looking at it in terms of orders of intelligence, <laughs> we would like to think that the paintbrush is significantly <laughs> less intelligent than the artist, right? Um, so how does it change the equation, you know, when we start to talk about artists collaborating with their tool instead of using their tool, how does that change the equation for what sort of the intention of the artwork can be? You know, just simply your framing of the question um, is giving me a little bit different take on a reality in the 
contemporary art world, mm. which is that collaboration among groups of artists or groups of artists and groups of people who don't think of themselves in art, as artists, but to make things is, it's become so strong uh, through, from about the 1990s up until now. When I started, an artist was only a singular person and you didn't want to be influenced by anyone and it was just you. Right. And it's really not like that now. And I think, you know, perhaps in some way, our interaction with digital tools and the potentials, which people have been forecasting for a very long time, right, right, right. have been kind of bubbling up in unconscious ways to prepare us for this idea of collaborating with uh, tool things that began as tools, but which maybe become yeah. something that can really be a collaborator. Yeah. I think, I mean, for me, so much of this conversation is... Some of the most interesting things are about examining sort of the boundaries and asking the question, like, well, what's the difference between using a machine and a human? So in this case, you know, what you're saying is collaboration in general is becoming more popular, right? Mm -hmm. And more accepted in the art world. So what is the difference between collaborating with a human and collaborating with a machine? Am I understanding your take yeah, on it that's correctly? A, yeah, that's in the direction. It's just like that we're, our idea of art has expanded or re-expanded. I mean, yeah. in the Renaissance, you know, artists would have 20 people in their studio painting their paintings with them. Right, 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 right. And so it, 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 we, it's just another little step to include like a, a partially sentient or somewhat intelligent a robot assistant mm. or maybe a, a, a robot a decider that has some kind of algorithm that it says it prefers this or that. And yeah. then you use that as a system to make your artistic choices. I mean, there's so many yeah. different ways that yeah, you could yeah. collaborate. Hey, everybody. I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. Do you think there's anything? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, typically because of uh, my background is uh, both in technology and sort of in the creative space. Um, so typically I sort of err on the side of technology. But do you think that there's anything that's being lost in sort of how we revere a traditional artist for the years that it takes to master the actual techniques or the... Um, you know, we, a lot of the conversation that's been happening here is sort of in this intellectual headspace of like, what is art and and what is its influence in society? But are we losing something in terms of how we look at an artist and what their skill set is? Mm. My 
this isn't something I've thought about really deeply, but my knee-jerk response would be have to be yes, because every time, I mean, we have so much processing power in our minds, and we forget things over time, and culturally, as a social body, we let go of some things so that other things can manifest. It, yeah. it, it's continual, and it's, you, yeah, it's always happening. So, but alongside that, I would say that the the respect for a certain kind of manual skill um it's not it's manual plus thinking when you get when you're talking about art because it's always the whole being working together yeah and i think that it will be a while before we would be ready to lose that if we ever are i yeah i think it's so miraculous when people experience it, I mean, people still, you know, look like we're, what we're doing in virtual reality. It's like the big drive is to try to recreate reality. I mean, it's like, why? <laughs> you know, we have reality. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's right, right. sort of about getting control over it, maybe in a way. Yeah. But when you, I'm really curious to see if there will become a, a point where people become more interested in abstract virtual reality. What can it say about the things that we don't see? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. That yeah, aren't yeah. visual. And, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that my, where my head goes with that immediately is like a lot of, um, a lot of experimentation in the early world of VR back in the, uh, seventies and eighties, as far as I understand, was around, um, uh, what changing what your perception of yourself is in virtual reality. So for in, in a very real way. So for instance, adding a fifth appendage to a human and seeing what does that do? Um, And in that particular case, it was really interesting because it turns out that because of how our brains have evolved, you know, there's a part of our brain that still thinks we're a fish and has to know how to use its flippers and and all that kind of stuff. And so it actually is a fairly short amount of time before our brains start to intuitively figure out how to control this fifth appendage, even though it doesn't actually exist. Um, But that's a really, a really interesting concept, how, how we could, sort of enhance what our own sensory computation is based on putting us in like some otherworldly reality. That's very interesting. So, um, so tell our listeners a little bit about your own background. Mm, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, it. Let me, I have to do a quick edit because there's so much of it. That it's like, like, what's really mental, relevant here? Like, what goes yeah. on this particular yeah. resume? Yeah. You know, I, I began as an artist and as a painter, and I've never really given it up. I mean, I'm mm. essentially drawing now yeah. for the artwork that I make. But um, I also always had a kind of spatial sensibility that in which I was interested in making environments. And mm. That was really, I couldn't manifest it very easily in the way I would want to until virtual reality kind of options came along. Yeah. So I'm at this kind of divide, you know, I'm an older woman who like grew up with like uh, not kind of being encouraged into science and stuff. And so I've had Mm. to kind of, I'm also very aware of a lot of the social structures around uh, all these things going on. So all of those things are important to me. Both, you know, going like, grandmas can do great technical, <laughs> you know, tech art and tech. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and... Uh, I, I hope to God that that is a, a real movement that's happening right now, by the way. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, man, I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to make it happen yeah. now, now that we've thought of 
<laughs> That's what's so great about conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you say these things you never thought you'd say. <laughs> yeah, let's just do it. <laughs> but um, so I, you know, I've been following a certain artistic impulse about uh, interaction that led into being interested in collaboration because mm. I, I need I get so much out of working with people who have different kinds of skills than I do. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that kind of wonderful, surprising leap that happens when you think things together that yeah. you wouldn't do alone. And that's really where I've ended up as an artist and as I'm also an academic. I teach at the San Francisco Art Institute, which oh, cool. I love. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you teach, just out of curiosity? Um, I... I teach uh, a variety of art, science, and technology courses. Oh, cool. uh, it's, it's thinking, uh, looking under the hood of how we think about art and technology yeah. mostly, and working with students on their work. So, uh, so um, that actually just sprung up a really interesting question in my mind that I haven't thought of up until now, which is how has how is the education world changing around what these new possibilities are with the crossover between art and technology versus sort of the old traditional ateliers and, um, you know, salon style sort of education? Yeah, It's a wonderful question, which I am uh, thinking about like all the time. Yeah. And it, it's very unclear right now, I guess I would have to say, because um, I think there's a huge part, I don't actually really rather than calling teaching art uh, in its deepest sense, I would call it the transmission of art because there is a mm. part of it which you really, you can't give it to someone. They can't learn it if they don't get it somehow. Right, right. And it, uh, it's where the whole, all the pieces come together. And so that transmission, I think, actually has a lot to do with un observing the unconscious things about your teachers. I mean, when I think of the, I had amazing teachers. And some of the things I remember that they said or did weren't uh, mm. classroom material, but it was how they acted, how they seemed to feel about going to their studio. You know, there's all yeah. learning on so many different levels that... Uh, we don't really have the technical capability to give that kind of presence. Mm. And I don't know if we'll get it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, but we are finding out what you can communicate through uh, technical means. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the best things about working with art and technology is it's so humbling. Mm. I mean, I learned from one of my students. There was a point where I felt like as a teacher, I should know, I should be able to answer all the questions in my class. Right. And we tried to do this video conferencing class before the technology was really ready. Mm. I was the, oh my God, I'm in the oh, middle of this, of this huge disaster. <laughs> and this wonderful student, Pete Ipple, who I will always love for this statement, who was like, you know, nobody can know all of this stuff. It's too complicated. We have to work together. Yeah. And it was, I will never <laughs> forget that. And it's like my mantra. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> funny you, because Pete. <laughs> Pete, you had uh, years of wisdom because I, I mean I I think that's so true. I mean, as a programmer, the running joke in the programming world is like, well, if you don't know what to do, just Google it, right? Like, there's this like we have this mystique around us, like we're some kind of magical wizards of computer land, and it turns out ninety percent of our work is just googling for a specific <laughs> problem. You know, that's um, so encouraging. <laughs> it is, and it should be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's funny. So I'm curious, 
what what do you feel like and especially from an educator's perspective you know there's a lot of like ethical questions that are coming up around the use of ai in the art world but just also generally in terms of future of work and um, automating jobs away and what happens to sort of working class people if those jobs go away um and from a creative perspective, a lot of these things are coming out around like, well, intention. How does machine have intention? Does it? Can it? Should it? Um, who do you think should own sort of the ethical implications of these toys that we're playing with now and arguably could be playing with fire? Mm. I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but let me try to come at from a slightly different angle. Sure. Um, which is this that I get so puzzled. I, I know that there's a discourse about that work is going away and yeah. stuff, but it just puzzles me because I look around me and I see all the things that we need that aren't happening. Mm. It's like the, the, uh, the children that aren't being taken care of, the streets that aren't getting cleaned, the, you know, it's just, it's, there's so much work to be done the forests that aren't being taken care of, the animals that aren't being protected, the wildlife, yeah. you know, it's, the oceans that are being cleaned, you know, it's just, there's so much work to be done. And mm. it's just, I think it's our, uh, our economic structure that needs, to, needs to, uh, Oh, have more imagination and more, yeah. uh, more different kinds of intentions built into it. Because right now we're built on a pretty extractive intention. Yeah. And it's not that it, I think that's only evil when it's out of balance. Sure. And yeah. we can do better. Yeah. So I kind of end up back to thinking like we have to change the human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the AI is just fine. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but how, how can, uh, how can artists, or sorry, artists, listeners find your work? Uh, uh, www.meredithtrumbull.net. Very nice. Can you spell <laughs> your last name for people? Yes. Um, I, I'll spell it all because there's so many possible spellings. <laughs> it's M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-T-R-O-M-B-L-E.net. <laughs> 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 you, you didn't think that you would have to be <laughs> spelling out your name <laughs> to people at this point in your life, probably. But. Oh, yes. No, I will always be spelling my name. But thank awesome. you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. It was a pleasure to get to meet you as well. I hope we get to keep in touch. Please. Cheers. Our next guest here at the Artobots Festival is a man by the name of Ken Goldberg. Ken is a roboticist by trade, but his talk was on something called the Uncanny Valley of the Dolls. Uh, the short version is he talks a lot about the distance between humans and robots and the uncanny valley has a lot to do with that but listen along as he explains in a little bit more detail and i think you're going to find it a really interesting conversation we are here out behind uh what is this building uh, the midway midway yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah with uh with ken goldberg who just gave a really cool talk on uh the uncanny valley of the dolls for listeners could you give kind of a little snapshot version of what the uncanny valley is yes so the uncanny valley is something that uh, roboticists and animators and designers use to think about making designs for robots for example that are not too realistic you can you can essentially make something that's too close for comfort 
If you make a an animated um, a character that's eye, eyes, its eyeballs, for example, are too realistic, you'll actually creep people out. Mm. And the same for robots. That you want robots to be clearly robots, but not um, not humans. Mm. You like to have a barrier between these two things. And what I made in the talk was a connection between that and Sigmund Freud, who was wrote the original theory about the uncanny. So. Um one of the things that I, I've been curious about with the Uncanny Valley and my own limited exposure to it is um, you see it often or most often talked about in terms of what something looks like, like the phenotype, right? So, you know, the plasticky robot is kind of creepy. I know masks get talked about a lot in the Uncanny Valley mm, yes. conversation. Mm. Um, is this, is the principle applicable to other like whether it's speech patterns or... Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's a great point. You're right. Um, so it, it is oftentimes in the what we call the uh, representational uh, and visual that we right. talk about it mostly, but you're absolutely right. And voice is a really good example, right? So that Siri mm. um, and, and all the new the new sort of synthetic voice systems have to be careful about walking this line. Yeah. And you'll notice that they, they do this in a very subtle way. So Alexa... Um, I think succeeds very well. People are very comfortable with Alexa because Alexa somehow somehow does never try to be too human. There's always this little bit of artifice that she's comfortable she's comfortable with where she is, and she doesn't try to be human like. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a kind of personality, and it's very subtle, but it's something that um, they seem to have tuned really well in terms of the inflections and other things. If suddenly it started becoming really lifelike, it would creep people out and right. people don't want it. They'll turn it off. They'll unplug it. <laughs> That's super interesting, man. I mean, you and you mentioned a similar thing in the talk where um, like with prosthet- prosthetics and um, there's another example you gave that escapes me right now, but that people actually design around this. They know that if they get yes. too close, they'll that that can work against the product or whatever they're designing. Definitely. So, and it, it's in so many different things, especially in the realm of AI, right? That if it, it you know, an, a chatbot, right? Well, it's right. not, it's not right. a voice, but just a, a chatbot. If it's starting to try to put, portray itself as human, mm. it's going to, it's going to run up against this exact phenomenon and it's going to very likely backfire mm. when it's trying to be too human. And it really rubs people the wrong way. If you have a chatbot, that's clearly a chatbot, right? Yeah. Then you're going to be more comfortable with it. And so this is really a it's a lesson really for people in AI that I think that haven't fully uh, engaged with this issue as yet. Yeah. But in AI systems, you don't want these systems to start um, appearing human like hmm. uh, you want them to be clearly machine. Right. And that that distinction between human and machine is yep. very, very deeply rooted in our psychology and our our our, our, our psyche. Hmm. Yeah, there's a really interesting parallel between what that gap is and sort of like, uh, you know, I think one of the one of the conversations that's happening in the AI world right now is sort of around um, we we're obviously making huge strides right now, but there's still this huge gap to generalized intelligence. Um, one of the things, though, is that like that's a discreetly measurable thing. Like once we're there, right? It, it, in terms of um, it can solve, so generalized intelligence should be able to solve any problem set that you throw at it, or at least make an attempt to solve it, right? I guess my question is, is there a discrete line in the world of the uncanny? Like, is there a measurable point at which you can say, like... <laughs> it's gone too far. Yeah, or yeah. like, eh, it's no longer creepy anymore. 
Well, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting point. Um, the even the Turing test, right, where you want to say there's a point in which we we now say this thing is is, is intelligent mm. because it's indistinguishable from a human. Um, that's a moving. That's not a fine point by any means, or a crisp, well defined point. It's um it's a moving target. In fact, you know what we something like the Google search engine to be able to type anything in there and have that respond the way it does today. You know, 20 years ago, that would have been considered, you know, the most advanced artificial intelligence imaginable. Right, right. And so, but now it's every day. We don't even think about it. And it's clearly just, it's a, we, we are comfortable with it as a machine doing that. Um, and, you know, when it anticipates what you're going to type, right, people are now comfortable with that too. You know, again, yeah. to the point someone raised about it's, uh, it's a moving, these, these, uh, these dividing lines are moving targets. Um, so, I think in the the realm of general intelligence, artificial general intelligence, what I think is a is a massive illusion and a, and a sort of delusion because I, I think we're very far from it. Most yeah. most researchers agree that you, uh, yes, we can get a robot or machine to play an amazing game of Go um, and to solve Jeopardy or other things like that, but that's very very different than being able to really carry on a, a conversation like we're having. Yeah, that it's just there's there's yeah. a huge gulf between those two things, <laughs> and and people don't appreciate yeah. that. They think, well, if it's smarter than the best person at Jeopardy, it must be pretty smart. Therefore, it's smarter than me, and therefore, right. you know, they're going to take over and take all my jobs. Yeah, and that's not that's a very important that 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 sort of fallacy. In fact, robots are not very capable. Right. And we've made small progress. We're making progress, but it's not as though they're about to—they're coming and they're going to steal our jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Like I have, so, I mean, I'm, I'm both on the creative side of things and the engineering side of things. And I have a lot of friends from back home in Pennsylvania who ask me like, oh man, we're hearing all this crazy stuff about AI. Like, is it true? And I'm like, yeah, but you gotta understand like it, the whole point of where it is right now is to solve a very specific problem. Right. Narrow so, AI. Right. Exactly. Where, where in Pennsylvania? Uh, so I was born and raised near Pittsburgh and then okay. lived, uh, went to Penn state and then lived five years in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Ah, so, okay. I grew yeah. up in Bethlehem. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very I nice. moved the other direction. I went. I was in Bethlehem, then I went to Philadelphia, then I was at uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, Carnegie Mellon's blowing up, man. It's like yeah. becoming a little tech hub out there. I know. They just Uber said, and... actually, today I read that they are the first um, college to offer a uh, a major in AI. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a billboard somewhere here in San Francisco that's like... Uh, you know, get a degree, yeah. like get a wife and kid, move to Pittsburgh and have a career or something like that. Right, right, right. Well, they actually, they have it at campus in, uh, in Ames, NASA Ames. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon is very, uh, oh, it's really great, yeah. great, uh, very ambitious. Yeah. Hidden gem. And they, they're very specific with the problems they tackle, which is a yeah. unique thing. You know, they're designing very specifically degrees and majors for specific problems in the tech world, which I think is interesting. Well, they started, I mean, it was uh, 1984 that they started the Robotics Institute. It yeah. was way ahead of its time. Yeah. People were really skeptical. Well, why would anybody want to get a degree in robotics? Like that seemed very... Idiots. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, coming back to the point of, um, you know, there's a misperception. Yeah. And it's very widespread, and especially in places like, you know, the Midwest, where I think people are hearing these things and, you know... Um, and, and essentially, like truck drivers, they read in the in the New York Times that uh, all they're going to be replaced. That you know, not that anyone believes everything in the New York Times anymore. But <laughs> um, but it's but this is not true. I mean, I don't yeah. think you know. I talk to people in working in this um, self driving cars and trucks, and here's yeah. the thing: probably we can get trucks to drive on the open freeway 
um, pretty reasonably. I mean, that's that's almost there. Yeah. But once they get off, as soon as they get off that exit, forget about it. Right. Right. There's right. No right, way. Right. <laughs> yeah, man. It's uh, that's it's hard to be a pragmatist in Silicon Valley. I know. But, but I the know. pragmatics are we're probably a little further away than people think. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, though, the hype is so so exaggerated right now um yeah. amplified that i think i'm worried about the, the backlash yeah um so you know just coming taking us back to you know talking about art sure i think one of the things that art is very good at is is, is sort of pointing out these um these bigger trends critiquing mm-hmm. the status quo because you know just when everybody's thinking you know one thing you know it's the artists who zag mm-hmm. and say hey listen here's a completely different way of thinking about this yeah like you know we, we talked about david hansen and i think you know he's one example where he's doing it in a very subtle way mm-hmm. people don't always realize what he's saying right they take it at face value but he's really you know it's a very very uh deeply thoughtful critique of artificial intelligence he's not he's not a faker actually claiming these are this is ai although that's what people think right 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 i'm curious what you think um so so i had this conversation with someone earlier that uh with all these ethical questions around ai you do see um it seems like the tech crowd kind of washes their hands of it because they're like hey this is going to happen one way or the other we're just interested in it because we're nerds and we like playing with things which like the nerdy side of my brain totally gets right and artists seem to kind of wash their hands of it because they're like, well, we're artists and we're always rebels. So we do it what we want. So either we hate it because we're being Luddites or we love it because it's an experimental tool. Who do you think owns or should own sort of those ethical questions around it? <laughs> Both. I mean, you know, everyone. So yeah. you're right. I mean, the... um the, the the washing the hands thing, you know, people say, you know, privacy, the, get over it, right? Like, no, I'm right. not going to get over it. I'm sorry. It's, uh, <laughs> this is actually extremely important and we have to be paying attention to it. Yeah. Um, the the same is true for, for, for AI and the implications, what it can do, the ethics, as you said. These are really subtle um, questions and they're, they're not also, I want to say they're not always new questions, right? Ethics. The ethical questions are asking about AI really reflect ethical questions that have been asked for thousands of years. What I think we have to do is be thinking about these from both the technology side and from the artist side. I do uh, have faith in both, actually. I think, um, you know, as, as you, I, I, I like to work on both sides, but I see the, the tension, the sort of yeah. dynamic between them. And I think that that's good. That's where this whole realm of art and tech has mm-hmm. its has its power because a, a lot of the people at this event and in your audience are really interested in 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 this um you know bringing these two elements together and there's like a, there's a natural friction that occurs because they're not they're not essentially they're they're really duels yeah. in my way uh, the way I think about it they're very different worldviews but they have a lot to 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 um there's a lot of benefit by by pushing them against each other yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, one of the things you mentioned, and I know you got to go, so this will be my last question. But one of the things you mentioned in your talk was that artists have been using this idea of the uncanny valley forever, which, uh, you know, I know people talk about Mona Lisa and, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Can you um, just for the listeners, give some pointers on who you think might be doing some really interesting stuff in the art world with the uncanny valley? Is there any anybody that, that jumps out right away to you? Well, you know, I, I think you can, it's really interesting once you start looking for it, it starts popping up all over the place. So, you know, certainly in, in a lot of the um, uh, uh, 
TV and films that you see nowadays. I mean, Westworld obviously is yeah. playing with the uncanny very deeply. I think that in terms of art, there's a there's a number of artists. I mean, Andy Warhol, as I quoted in there, uh, was deeply interested in. I mean, he was so far ahead of his time in so many ways, but he was also thinking about the uncanny. Uh, I think that um, there's artists like um, uh, Puccini that mm-hmm. I mentioned, who I feel she's 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 brilliant and yeah. and uh i was glad that so many people knew of her already but um and and then uh um, ron muick there's um uh stellark there in, in some sense you can go into almost any gallery setting like those here and 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 many artists are, are playing with it consciously or unconsciously they're they're toying with this this fine line this this tension yeah. that occurs that really goes down and connects to our to our emotion grabs us by the gut you know that's that's where art really works best yeah great well thanks so much for taking the 15 minutes Kenny it was uh, great to <laughs> get to talk to you I know you gotta run but thanks right, so much for wrapping you. up with me alright it's really a pleasure great Cheers. talking to you hey everybody I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the state of the art it was something very different for us and I loved being invited by Kodame to the Artabots Festival uh, next week, we're going to have the second part of the Artabots Festival. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about our guests today, then we have websites and we have Twitter handles. Alex, you can find at areben.com. That's A-R-E-B-E-N.com. Meredith has her own website at meredithtromble.net. M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-T-R-O-M-B-L-E.net. And last, Ken, you can find at goldberg.berkeley.edu or on Twitter as Ken underscore Goldberg. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please tune in next week for more Artobots. Until then, have a great one. Thanks for listening to The State of the Art. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Leaving a review is super easy and helps other listeners just like you discover our podcast. Look, we want to bring you the coolest conversations from art and technology, but we don't know everything. If you guys have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, please hit us up on Twitter or Instagram under the handle State of the Art. There's some other awesome exclusive content there, too. Until the next episode, this is your host, Andrew Herman, signing off from State of the Art.